This is Storybeat, storytellers on storytelling. Storybeat explores how artists and creators of all kinds craft their stories. So join us as we reveal how master storytellers develop and build brilliant stories that people the world over love and adore. I'm Steve Cuden, and welcome to Storybeat, coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today is the multi-talented producing director of the Pittsburgh CLO, Mark Fleischer. First, a bit of background. Prior to joining the prestigious Pittsburgh CLO, Mark served as producing artistic director for the Adirondack Theater Festival from 2007 to 2014 and managing artistic director of the Plano Repertory Theater from 1993 to 2002. His numerous directing credits include Next to Normal, Shooting Star, Superior Donuts, the national tour of Clifford's Big Family Musical, that I've got to hear more about, all My Sons, Tally's Folly, Sunday in the Park with George, A Chorus Line, Passion, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, and The Tempest, to name but a few. Beyond working in the theater, Mark has also taught acting, theater history, and arts administration at SUNY Empire State College, Columbia College, and Collin College. I'm truly pleased to have Mark Fleischer join me on Story Beat today. Mark, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Steve. Yeah, well, we are delighted that you could stop by. Uh, what would you say were your earliest uh, influences or inspirations, and what, what drove you to become a person of the theater? Um, I always was a bit of a performer, according to my parents. They would tell stories of if you went to Disneyland and there was a band in the town square, I was in front dancing. Um the two sort of earliest sort of formative performing memories would be uh, the first movie I ever saw was the Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, uh, Mary Poppins. Um, and I didn't even know what a movie was at the time. Uh, but we had the soundtrack already at the house. So we had listened to it. I knew every song, didn't know that that was connected to a story. And I think the moment that the movie started and I connected my brain Everything I knew a song was now in it was just this explosion. And my mom says they couldn't keep me out of the aisle. Um, About what age? I don't know. It's got to be like three or four. Oh, I little, was real young. Boy. I was really young. But it was the first movie I ever saw. And that movie's always been incredibly important to me and, and the story and, um, and Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews. And so to be now at CLO where Julie Andrews is our honorary chair and to have just done Mary Poppins for them was kind of exciting. Um, yeah, when later in years later, um, they did those whole like, follow the bouncing ball music movies where you could go and sing and the friends with me were laughing because I was singing lyrics that weren't even on the screen um, so that <laughs> was really important and then I would say the next time when I was 12 my parents took my first Broadway musical which was Chorus Line at uh, the Dallas Summer Musicals and I was dumbfounded I could not stop the stories it suddenly was me you know, which is, of course, how that story, that show comes to be is real stories of real dancers talking about their life and as a 12-year-old who was kind of never the sports guy that was what was happening in Texas where I grew up, um, to hear the stories of putting shows on in the garage or all, all – those are the lyrics that just stick in my mind right now. And then combine that with the voice of Zach from the back of the house. I just knew that was a place I wanted to be. Um, I remember at 12 cry, crying at Paul's monologue. Um uh, just the sort of honesty of that play and in, in show, and then the excitement of the show. I knew that was a world I wanted to be in, and that was before I'd even really done a play. Um, 
and it stuck with me. And the opportunity to direct it years later at Plato Rep was just so important to me. Um, and got to meet some people that were involved with the original, Michael Sarekia, and some others who became resources and friends. And uh, I think those two would be the most sort of theater side um, in terms of events that probably put me here. I then didn't ever think I would do it for a career. I actually was going to be a scientist or pre-med or journalist and went to pre-med in college. Um, but the theater had always been part of what I did and um, made that change pretty much in my freshman year. Um, I'm not sure anybody thinks they can make a career. I think that's of part of what it was. I, I grew up in a, a rather wealthy suburb and and the idea of what that lifestyle, no one around me had been a professional artist. My aunt was a singer in a, in a chorale. She worked for Robert Shaw Chorale. But it wasn't in your family. It wasn't my family's purview. My, you know, my, so um, my family's mostly military and I wasn't going there. Uh, it was <laughs> not in my, I mean, my family would admit that wasn't who I was. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was sort of the two events. And then I had, you know, as everyone, two great teachers, John Steele, my high school theater teacher, which was an incredible influence, um, who treated us like the, the worst insult was not bad for high school students. Um, John actually studied with Sanford Meisner in New York and thought that we could handle that as as high school students, so I actually did Meisner technique as a junior. That's that's young for Meisner. Uh, um, he was such a so into the craft and what we were trying to learn. The first week of class my junior year, because we had a two-year high, senior high, was we spent the entire t- time trying to define acting. Like he literally had us breaking it down like we go, oh, you're imitating. Are you really? You know, and then we would, and it was the weirdest Socratic sort of way to get to uh, imitating life under imaginary circumstances, which is Boleslavsky's um, definition from the first six lessons. So again, it was that sort of intensity but I had no intention that this is what I was going to do, although I guess always wanted to. Was he a was he a taskmaster to high school kids? Yes, he was. It was pre the sort of House Bill seventy two in Texas where you could limited the rehearsal. Um, we would did my senior year. We did four shows the first semester, and I was in three of them. Um, he believed in teaching realism to students, um, so the shows we were doing. I mean, we would do Lorca. House Bernardo Alba. Wow. We would do an original dance show. He had actually studied with Luigi and done dance. I had dance class. There was a two-hour theater block. Um, Plano Senior High was set up with a sort of mix of collegiate and professional, so you could study tasks. You could actually be a. Uh, you could get your cosmetology degree before you graduated high school. You could learn HVAC. It was. It was set up when Plano was more rural that some people would go to college, some would not. And actually the senior high was stepped. And acting was still part of that. There was a two-hour block of, of theater we took. Um, but yeah, he was very much a taskmaster. But I, I mean, and I have horrific memories of that, but yet love this man to death and still in touch with John. Um, he taught me things beyond theater. He believed that while he was driving us to be the best at theater, he was not teaching people to be actors and professionals. He was teaching them to have great life skills. And I will tell you some of the, we still laugh about this. John taught me that all of us, he would get mad if we didn't know the name of the janitor in the high school. Oh, well, that's brilliant. That was the sort of lessons on top of that, that our job was to get to know that. John had grown up in the oil fields of South Texas. His dad was an oil man. He went off to do theater, um, but came back to Texas to teach. And, you know, we did original dance shows. We did, they did chorus line after I left. They, you know, um... Uh, and but I was thrown off the stage for not being real several times. I was thrown off the stage for saying the word "I" too many times. Wow. Um, we used to, there was a sidewalk from the parking lot to the um, theater, the theater building, and 
I used to joke that you could judge how you were feeling by the length of that sidewalk in your imagination. But we kept going. We kept going. We'd go in at two in the morning. And the other one was it's, he never did a run through. He polished as we went, which meant we would start every rehearsal at the first of the show. Wow. And then never get past what we had done the day before. Well, I mean, how did you get finished? When did you, you... just opening night? Um, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't believe we were doing it for an audience. He believed he was teaching us so, how to work. So he was teaching you life lessons all along. Right. He really wasn't teaching you theater. He was just teaching you life lessons through theater as a and as doing, the means and doing shows that nobody thought we should do. Lorca and Ibsen and you know things like that. And, that probably, no high school... and probably today you, you wouldn't be able to get away with some of them. I'm guessing uh, he doesn't teach anymore. And part of what he said was he grew out of the. You know, the kids, he got further and further from the kids and was not what he wanted, could do. Um, but, you know, he was a second father type figure to me and very important to me. And I'm still in touch, as I said. Um, and uh, there's many of us out of our class that came out of, play- John Hickey came out of Plano Senior High. Really? Um, yeah, he, many years before me, but he was a student there. And they all will say, if you could work for John, you could work for anyone. Um, and he also had this really great co-teacher, Ms. Ida, who did the business side, which kind of was my first model of that relationship of managing director and artistic director, an incredible model of male-female coworkers that treat each other equally. Um, you know, and again, it's just really important. And then I left senior high to go to college, as I said, to be a doctor and not not thinking I'd well, look back. Well, clearly that didn't work out. Mark. No, it didn't. It failed miserably. <laughs> so, all right, you've you've had the the uh, the good fortune, I would say, to be able to work on a variety of different things within the theater: musicals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. dramas, plays, etc. Uh, of those, is there one that you prefer over the others, or one that if you said somebody said to you, you can only pick one for the rest of your career, it would be blank? I don't think I'd do genre. I think what I would do is say new work. Um, things that haven't been done, no matter what the storytelling medium. You prefer is. to help develop new work. I found I didn't know there was such thing as new work. You know, you grew up as a kid and doing revivals. You know, the writers are sort of off in New York City. You never heard of. You know, you're never going to meet them. Um, and it really wasn't. I tried to do a little new work in Dallas. There wasn't a lot. Not a huge playwriting community. Uh, it's when I went to graduate school in Chicago at DePaul, the theater school at DePaul that new work became really amazing because Chicago had become this sort of new work, Tracy Letts, and uh, I'm not even going to think of uh, Ike Isaac and all these people that I knew that were actually writers. And I was seeing shows for the first time. And then I got in the room. Um, I let people know I was interested in new work. So I started working as a dramaturgy intern at the Goodman when I was in my 30s because I went to grad school late. Um, Red Plays, met with that dramaturg um, who uh, taught me some great lessons, the one being... um, when we read a show, she goes, you're not to read the 10 pages, you read the whole thing. She goes, we're not looking for a relationship with a play, we're looking for relationships with writers. That's very good. And it was really, she goes, it could be a character, it could be it could be the whole script, could be a scene, could be a line, could be an image that captures your imagination, you don't know where it's going to come, and then we give encouragement to that writer, and that writer then knows to reach back to us, and who knows, even the show might not be right for the good men, but the next one could be. Um, and that really stuck with me. And then from there, I did work at Steppenwolf as an intern. I worked at Victory Gardens, any theater in Chicago that would have me. And then I spent an internship at the O'Neill, uh, working in the literary department. Really the idea that writers could be in the room and have that process. The idea of it's, um, you know, working with a, a dead writer doesn't seem as exciting anymore to me <laughs> um, uh, than it used to be. Um, and that includes live writers, living writers who uh, are have shows that are older. You, pr- yeah, I don't mind. As, yeah, I mean, I just like the idea of being in the room with a writer. I mean, not just because we can change it, but you know, it's the it's the skill that I'm jealous of. I have lots of ideas for shows, but the idea of sitting down and actually writing the play, 
I just can't, you know, it's just not who I am. And I'd rather edit and interpret and support and find teams. You know, I think that's been the other thing. As much as I love directing, I woke up one day and realized I'm really a producer. I haven't directed a full show in, in, a, in at least a couple years. I teach, I coach. I obviously come in as a producer and artistic director type to, you know, ask questions. Um, but to me, it's about putting the, the – there. I've discovered there's an art form in the producing side that I didn't always, I just did that initially because I could get jobs directing because I found out I could do the other skills and then I could run a theater and then I could give myself two or three shows a year to direct. And then along the line, it was like, oh, you know, producing was taking more of my time. Um, yeah, so. Well, we had Ken Davenport. Uh, you do know, oh, yeah, do you, you know Ken? Ken? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we had Ken Davenport on the show a few weeks ago and talked about the, the notion of creative producing or creative mm -hmm. producers, and certainly he's one of the most yes. creative yeah, producers. Yeah. And and I think that the great producers are, in fact, creative. They're not just numbers or nuts and bolts people. And that was, I think, the at least in the commercial theater, that was the old days, right? That's the how Prince is and George Abbott's and... and and then it's changed. I mean, there are a lot of money, partly because of the money. And so I would say from my own situation with my boss, with Van Kaplan and American in Paris, Stuart, Stuart, who's his partner in producing those, Stuart's the money sort of businessman, and Van knows how productions get put together. And that kind of became a, a team effort. Um, Van knows the other stuff as well. But his strength is that he actually knows how to talk to production staff and understands what the labor is to get that change done. And actors and, and actor, writers and, and all the yeah, rest Yeah, and he spends a lot of time on the road, you know, with that show. He'll go out, I think he's actually going to Vegas today to see the new Jerry going in, because uh, it's important to him that they know that there's someone up above that cares, you know, that they're not just horses going out and doing the, the show. Well, um, so when you're looking, when you're actively seeking work to work on, mm -hmm. um, what for you, A, what do you look for, and B, what to you makes a good story good? What's worthy of your time? I guess it, it's probably changed a bit over time. I know earlier, again, we bring our own lives to the stories that we want to tell. And so, you know, father-son relationships were really important to me. I lost my father when I was 12, and, I, and I've always sort of, that's been whether it, when I was doing revivals like All My Sons or even um, My Favorite Year, which has a replacement father figure, and argue, you know, those sorted to be the initial um, when I got to Goodman and then I really realized I was looking at authors' voices because I was looking for worlds I hadn't seen. And I don't mean like science fiction. I just mean what's the world of this play, whether, you know, and, and again, we're kind of in that sort of even golden age of television, the idea to move into, you know, Mad Men and be in that world or to be in the world of uh, zombies with Walking Dead. So for me, it's what world has been created um, and is it a new world that I want to spend time in and, you know... Um, and then there's a strong story. I'm very narrative. I mean, I will say that. I'm not interested in as much in the reviews, the single author reviews or the 10 scenes. You know, the evening of one acts never appealed to me. Um, I want a narrative that takes me somewhere that, you know. You want to follow a single character on some interesting At least journey. one or a group. Right. I mean, I can follow a group depending on how well it's written. Um, although, you know, musicals now they've been there, I'm discovering is much more about the single the single person's journey. No question. In terms of in terms of finding a community or finding their place in a community or building a sense of community. Um, the, the the chorus lines and the avenue cues of the world are few and far between. But even Avenue Q is about a guy trying that's to find his purpose that's correct. and realizing that he's part of that community 
and he can do something same in there. with a chorus line right yes it's the same way for cassie trying to get back into a community absolutely and zach realizing he stepped too far um in the way that yeah but 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 Yes, but the structure of a chorus line allowing me to get to know Val and Paul and all these people, uh, you're still watching a sort of a follow through. The main action is will Cassie be able to start her career? Absolutely. Um, so, so a good story for you is really about a character driving towards some kind of a goal, or when I say a character, a character surrounded by other characters, because there has to be this interaction. Right. Um, you know, a couple, you know, I would say things that, yeah, I think it's character and community and the idea of getting along. Ian Bogart, I saw her speak once. She said, you know, at the basics, it's all the general, it's the, the all literature. I think it's, it's hard. It's about how do we all get along? Um, and where's that place within it? The, you know, the outsider, the, the person within who doesn't fit in, um, you know, the, uh, and it's interesting at CLO, I get to do sort of a balance of these because the cabaret space, which I'm overly responsible, one of my big responsibilities, is a is more fun and light, but yet trying to find the balance of something that's got some heart and not cynical about that sort of environment. And then the larger shows we do in the summer, um, you know, which are the great Broadway shows of today and yesterday. I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated by the, the term CLO, or short for Civic Light Opera, which nobody says anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that's really become the the... The place where Broadway shows wind up more often than not, big famous Broadway shows. Right. I mean, you know, the history of the organization from 1946, founded in in, in Pittsburgh after this the World War II, and felt that they need to. I know it'll make the town happy after the steel mills aren't going to be producing. We'll need musicals, specifically light operettas. So they were doing Nona Nanette and 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 Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, but it's organ. It's changed over time. And when my my boss Van Kaplan came in in '97. The, the thought was you have 50 years of a brand, so you don't want to get rid of it, but it's not doesn't define who we are. Um, both the connotations of opera, we don't do light opera. I think we did the student prints a number of years ago. It's probably the last <laughs> one we've done. Um, but yeah, so the CLO, and the Pittsburgh CLO is known nationally. Um, Van's work uh, with the Broadway League, our work with NAMPT, National Alliance of Musical Theater. Um, we participate not just here. You know, we, we're, we've invested or helped produce over... 26 Broadway shows. That's amazing. Um, including American in Paris, which we were the lead on, which started here. Um, and again, talk about relationships. It's not, they're, you know, Gershwin's are dead, obviously, but not all of them, some of the relatives. So that show, American in Paris, started, we did a show called Swonderful that we were developing at the cabaret. The Gershwins came to see it. They really loved what we did with it and turned to Van and said, would you like to take on American in Paris? He said, well, let me give it a read. He wouldn't watch the movie. He realized he needed a partner, figured out, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get into this story that's not that great a movie that's really an excuse for a seven-minute ballet tacked on at the end. That's precisely and, right. And they figured out this way of taking it back to Paris, moving it to right after the war, making it about Paris coming back to life, making it about an ex-GI who's literally decided to stay in Paris versus coming back because he can't face So you found some heart, and then they went forward. But again, that came from you never know where it's going to start or come from. And then we have the tours that we bring in, and but you know we, we also are very unique in that we're one of the largest organizations still of our size. Most of our sister theaters are gone um, that we still produce. I mean, out of the six shows this summer, five of them are ours that we're actually creating in town. One's a tour that we're creating with another theater, and it's going around Little Mermaid. Um, but the other four, we're producing in town with actors, and when it's done, it's done. You're not just a receptacle for bus and truck we're, tours. 
we create art in Pittsburgh. We don't just present people. And these are people that stay in town. These are people that, um, you know, many Point Park students, many CMU students, people from outside, whether it be Michigan or CCM, come in and coveted roles are our ensemble. They, they earn their equity card. They learn how to work. They launch the, many people can launch in, in the big theater world um, all the way back, can count CLO as one of their first credits and and move forward. So we and we take great pride in 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 nurturing homegrown talent. Oh, between forward. between uh, the CLO and Pittsburgh Musical Theater and other organizations in town, uh, Pittsburgh has turned out an enormous number of people into mm-hmm. professional careers in the theater, which is kind of rare, I think. Um, and and I, for one, can say how uh, thrilling it's been for t- twice in the last twenty plus years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the CLO has put Jekyll and Hyde on, mm-hmm. so that's always been a great thrill for me. I had the privilege to see both mm-hmm. both productions and was you know thrilled beyond words. Well, thank you. Um, so, for you, when you're producing or directing, obviously producing and directing are related but different mm-hmm. things. Um, do you, when you're working on producing and or directing something for the cabaret mm-hmm. versus something that's for the CLO for the big stage, summer season, right? Yeah. Right. Um, what are those differences? What do you have to consider? What do you think about? How do you approach it differently? Well, the summer season, which is just. One, it's time because the summer season we we do eight day stock. We put the show up in eight days and five hours of tech and then another five hour rehearsal at the Benenum. So we're doing summer stock on a Broadway scale. So that's about organization and planning. I mean, that's in terms of the the nuts and bolts. How of far what out I do. in advance do you have to start planning a show uh, to do it in eight days? Um, well, it depends. Again, it's artists we hire who may have a relationship to the show. Um, we're you know we've already been through casting. We're putting together um, what we call scene to scenes, where we take the set design and we go page by page. Is this is this scene? This is this scene? So they can track. Um, stage management comes in. I mean, it moves fast. Um, uh, Van and I are already talking about the season for eighteen, and we should have that figured out before the summer, and we'll start moving there. Uh, but that's a difference than um, say the cabaret, which has a little bit longer rehearsal period, but it also does newer work. Uh, the cabaret is all locally cast. Um, you know, sometimes in the summer season, we'll find people who've known some of the bigger roles, so it makes it a little bit easier. Um, the cabaret is about the venue. I mean, one of the things I really love about that space when I moved here was um, it's such a unique venue. There's nothing else like it in town. You can have a drink as an audience member. You can drink, have dinner, see a show. The actors are no, are really right there. We've done some stuff. They're interact. in your. They're not in your face. They're in your lap. Right, and um, and it's intimate. And then afterwards, you can go have a, bar, a drink in the bar afterwards, and the actors you and are out there. To me, that's what that is. That's a community experience of theater. And, and for us, we believe it's sort of a gateway into the cultural district, into the CLO. It's, it's, it's given us a year-round presence. It's allowed us to nurture even more homegrown talent with, with professional gigs out of, you know, uh, out of Point Park or CMU. Um, and you can take risks with the shows in there. Yeah, I mean, that's where we've done Toxic Avenger, Alter Boys. And now we're moving into a very new phase because you know we've done everything you could think we could do in that space from Nonsense to Plaid to Toxic to Alter Boys, Pump Boys and Dinettes. So now we've launched this initiative to develop what's the next generation of five-actor or less musicals. And that's where, you know, one of the reasons I was brought in, um, and that's where I'm getting really excited, was what's that next, who's going to be the next Danny Goggins and come up with their nonsense? Um, and then I also like, because we've talked about this a lot, how do you do this in a way that's really about character, entertaining, storytelling, and not cynical? Not just, hey, we need a disco show, right? I mean, you can do that. We could sit around and come up with a great title tomorrow and come up with a crazy premise and, you know. Well, you're back to your notion of narrative. Right, yeah. 
I mean, that's what's that's what's good, great about the the shows that you you program into the CLO is right. into the cabaret right. is that um, they tend to be story driven, right. character and story driven, and not just a bunch of. I mean, I, I love some of the jukebox musicals and so on, but they tend to get a little they wear on you after you've seen a bunch of them. Right. So it's great when you have the narrative in there. And the other thing is that you know we we give great employment to the our shows run fifteen weeks, so you know I can identify a show and go, well, that might run four if you do the Rosemary Clooney story, right? But or review, but I think at the end of the day, it's about comedy and storytelling that will get people. That's what you're going to leave because you saw a story of Toxic Avenger. Uh, and then there's things like just the, again the local talent taking risks in casting, doing things a little differently, whether that's diversity or casting a, an actor who has one leg as Toxic Avenger. Uh, uh, Evan, who was that was great. that was amazing casting, by the way. Well, and it just he was the best actor for the job. Had nothing to do with what because now everyone thinks that's how the show was written. But how, when you watch it and he's using that single, uh, that his his false leg, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's a, you think that that's written into the show. Well, where do you find actors like that? Well, you know, you don't. You, you don't. Know. We just found the right actor for the role, and he happened to have one leg. One leg. And then we figured out a way to integrate it into the storytelling with the, the director and choreographer. Well, absolutely brilliant Thanks. the way you guys did it. Um, I, okay, so process-wise, you obviously have multiple projects in the pipeline <laughs> at the same time. What do you do, you personally, what do you do to stay uh, on top of things when you have multiple <laughs> things going on? Do you have techniques? Do you have a trick? Do you have a board in front of you? What do you do? Um, I'm probably going to have to move to the whiteboard. I actually have an erase, a dry, dry erase board I just bought for that purpose. Um, so here's my, a couple of years ago, and it'll be more than that, I was realizing that I was more productive in college than I was anywhere else in my life and the ability to stay on top of projects. Uh, and this is when I was running Adirondack. And I was like, and it was, I was at my college reunion and I was like, I was so busy and productive. There was this moment where I thought I haven't lived up to my potential. And then I realized it's because of my schedule was dictated for me. Mm-hmm, sure. So and I, you have deadlines given to you. Right. So I actually went back and, to my office, and I started scheduling my life like class. So That's I, interesting. So I had an hour class every hour. I had a marketing class, a development class, an artistic class. And part of what it taught me was – and I, so when I finished the hour of whatever I'd put in that day I was going to do, if I, when I, if I hadn't finished the task, I had to move on to the next class. And then if I finished the task, I got to do something fun, like take a walk or get another cup of coffee or surf the internet. What it taught me actually over the course of time, and I do this still sometimes to touch base, is what an hour of work actually is. Because I would be like, we're going to write the entire Schubert Foundation grant in one day. But there's no way. You can only write for an hour. Um, So that was my sort of – and I still kind of do that now and then. I get interrupted by things. But I'll be like, from 9 to – 10 or at now it's like 8 to 9 is my communications class that's return all emails and all phone calls from the day before and I have that same class at the end of the day and then I try not to go back in the middle and then I will you know artistic and reading is the hardest thing for me because it's it's the thing I I feel guilty about doing um so I used to at Adirondack like take a bag of scripts and go off into the mountains and rent a cabin and spend an entire weekend reading which is not the best way to get through scripts (laughs) because things don't get equal treatment but um yeah, it's about scheduling and spending the time with it. Do you have somebody that you work with? Is it, you have a secretary or assistant? Or uh, I have a new uh, producing assistant, Olivia O'Connor. We just got. I'm thrilled. She just moved here from. Uh, we took her from the roundabout, but she actually was nice. a dramaturg student at CMU. Grew up in the area, wanted to come home, um, and she is going to take over a lot of the sort of the submission 
uh, side. She's, she's my assistant in terms of that and kind of the casting. She's going to deal with casting and that. Um, and I'm going to let her kind of set up a reading program with volunteers, you know, people I've had interns from Point Park, many of your students from screenwriting who have been readers, and we'd like to get that even more formalized. I, I know uh, we've had great success uh, sending folks over to you, our students over to you. Uh, and, great. And thank you for having me, too. <laughs> they stay. They don't go away. I, I know. They <laughs> love lo- it over I'm there. sorry that I'm making the screenwriters want to do we're, musicals. We, we, we've got <laughs> cinema kids going over and becoming theater people. There's something going I, on. We, we I, love it. You I know. know. I mean, that's my weird world. I've, I bridge both worlds so, but, so But I have to tell you, it's been great. Some of these kids, actually all of them, want to be there. I mean, stuck around for auditions. Someone followed me. You know, was in town. Uh, Scott was in town for in New York and actually sat in on auditions in New York. Just I was like, have we turned you into a theater person? He goes, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sorry. I Go. think he was into it long before he got to us. Yeah. But but in fact, that's it's great one because when you take the, uh, fo- someone like that who's really in that. Um, great learning phase, mm-hmm. and you say, here's a different opportunity, mm-hmm. you expand their horizons so much. Well, and what's been great about the kids that you've sent us because of the screenwriting, because of the book writing, they know story and structure, character. And so I can tell them, look, I'm not expecting... Thank you for saying so. Yeah, no problem. You've written the book on it. Um, I don't. My point to them is, I don't. you don't have to necessarily know about song and lyric how lyrics are good, but you can figure out the structure and how the song works, and and that's what I'm actually looking for. Because, And I'll tell you, the number one thing I deal with when I'm criticizing or reading a show and doing my evaluation is the events don't hold together, you know, or the payoff isn't there. Well, like that, That's the number one problem with most uh, new plays and musicals is that they, there's there's a lack of cohesion. There's no thematic drive all the way through. Uh, yeah, I'll say my two. I'll do my two right now. Um, bridging which is where they'll take something that could be a 10-minute skit and do things to just stretch it out. <laughs> and the other one I laugh, I, I tell this today, is the, uh, I call it the I've got a secret plot where we all know there's a secret. We're just waiting <laughs> for it to be revealed. I'd rather you get the secret out and deal with it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's really, because you can just tell like, oh, something happened in the past. Tell us and then deal with it. That's the interesting drama, not the stretching it out to the big revelation. I will tell this is this is an actual, you're right, this is an actual problem, and it's the same thing in screenwriting and mm-hmm. television writing yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it. And I will tell you, although it's a, a film person, I will tell you who you should point to if you want to give them a good example of okay. do it this way, not that way. Just point to most Hitchcock. Right. Because Hitchcock is always going to go and more or less give you a huge clue up front, if not tell you who the bad guy is. Right. And now it's it the, 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 the job of the audience is to follow the protagonist as he or she discovers what it is till we get to the revelation. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's usually what happens is it's mom and dad or kid and mom, and there was some issue, and you know the issue's there. You're just waiting for what it is, and we're just killing time. Um, as opposed to just get out, mom, you, you know, did a horrible birthday party for me, and now we're going to deal with it. You know, the other part of that problem is that's in the past. The, 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 it sounds to me like frequently um, you have characters that are not driving toward a goal. No, usually they're looking back, right, and reacting to it, as opposed to whatever that beginning was, and then move on. And more so, uh, as, I, as I, I, you know, I teach and both I've written about, musicals in particular are far more aligned and, and like movies in terms of structure than plays in right. many ways. And musicals in particular have to have that narrative drive where right. characters seeking a goal set up in an inciting incident. Right, and I think you and I have talked about this before, that I think most, uh, I mean, whether it's BMI, ASCAP, 
they tend to be songwriters and lyricists and composers who are going out and think they can write the book. Right. Or they come up with a great idea and write the, the funny opening number in songs. I would love to see the reverse, as we've talked about. I'd rather see someone who knows they're going to write a musical write a book that holds together. And you can put song goes here that would do this or just write the whole thing. I mean, I think back to the, um, you know, the Hammerstein's um, you know, lessons for Sondheim when he was young, which was take a book and adapt it or take a dramatic thing that works and adapt it. Next was take a, something non-dramatic and adapt it. Now write your own story. And that sort of tells you he was learning how structure worked before he wrote a musical of his own. Um, again, that's I'd, I'd rather see that work. Um, you know, let me write the story I want, pitch the story and the conflict and that, and then let's figure out where the songs go. I mean, I love musicals. I, I'm thrilled I get to do them every day now. Um, but yeah, that would be my main sort of concern right now if I, as I evaluate. So I, I have to ask because it's just yeah. fascinating to me. Clifford's Big Family Musical. <laughs> where did that come from? I mean, I know where Clifford the Big Red Dog comes from. Uh, where did How did you get involved in that? Where, did you help develop it? I did actually help develop it. So um, uh, Mills Entertainment out of Saratoga Springs, it's kind of a fun story. He was a magician who then realized he had some business sense, and then he started managing all his favorite musician, uh, magicians. Then he ended up being an agent for comedians, including this little guy out of Cleveland named Drew Carey, and then Drew got famous, and then he had this company, Mills Entertainment. Um, and he was always doing what I would call reality stools on a star, on a reality stars on a stool, which was like cake. Re- ball. Reality stools are a different. Yeah, thing a whole thing. I don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> but it's but they, he had like you know a medium like the Long Island medium, and he still has these people. But he realized that if if those guys didn't want to come, the show was done. So we, he said he wanted to start doing um, plays and shows, and he really didn't have a background in it. So I, he was in Saratoga. I was in, up in Glens Falls, New York, with Adirondack. He called wondering who a director could be, and, and he didn't really know me as a director. I said, well, I'd love to at least take a crack at it. Um, and so we got uh, Scholastic to give us permission to try it. And uh, So Scholastic didn't drive the project? No. Well, That's interesting. There's a, so Scholastic and a lot of these places out there, and, and like the movies companies now that will send you a list of movies if you want to adapt for a musical, they have their products too. And so um, it started with that, which kind of was, was – he said you have an option to try to develop it. We developed it. Um, worked with a songwriter and a book writer and you know had to come up with an hour it needed to be an hour long needed to be able to be stretched if we were having that's for school performances but then on weekends it needed to be able to stretch a little bit longer and have an intermission uh, we worked with this great puppet maker to figure out how i was able to convince scholastic to not make the smaller dogs be um full-size characters like mascots i was able to convince them to do a person dressed in black with a puppet because I made the point to them. I said, kids play with dolls all the time. I think a child will watch someone play with a dog and get it. Cl- closer to the way they do Avenue Q? Yes, but it, but we would actually move down to the ground. We actually had full bodies for the dogs. Got it. Because by getting them lower, then Clifford looked bigger, and Clifford was two guys in a suit that learned how to moonwalk in it. They were great. So we produced that, and it went on a tour. It's gone out a couple times. This is the same company that just did um, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which I was going to be involved with, but then got the job at CLO, and I needed to focus on that. But and I'm that's still, also Pittsburgh-based. Pittsburgh-based. Um, but that was, again, driven by... Uh, the Fred Rogers company working with us, and they were great. I did a few of the initial meetings. Uh, but this is where he started moving into. He also has done Sid the Science Guy, 
but Clifford started it for him. And Sid the Science Guy? Not Bill Nye the Science No, Sid the Science I may be wrong. I don't watch enough children's television, but Sid something. And then there was Dinosaur Train, which totally sounds like a pitch movie to me. Like, look at <laughs> kids like dinosaurs, <laughs> kids like tra- trains, yeah. sharks and tornadoes. I mean, you know. Um, so, yeah. I so it's a friend that developed a show one time called Battle Snakes. Yep. I know. <laughs> so, anyway, so Clifford was fun. It was, uh, I, I mounted it two or three times. It's gone out. It's the first time I've had it. It's a national tour. <laughs> More people have probably seen that than anything else I've ever done. Was it a lot of fun to do? Or was it just hard work? Uh, it was fun. The remounts were interesting because I'd never done that before. Like, I've only done shows one-off. The idea of then going back and going, hey, we're going to remount it with a new cast. And, of course, I want to go in and mess with it and do other things like that I've learned. They're like, no, 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 we just want the same show. That was sort of the – that was a new rule. But- so, so now Clifford, the, the the cartoon that came out of Clifford and Clifford mm-hmm. the property itself, I, I never – you know, I wrote a lot of cartoons, but right. I, I never wrote for Clifford the Big Red Dog, but I have friends who did. One of the things about Clifford and other shows of its uh, nature is it was it's for really little kids. Mm-hmm. It's for little, little kids, like uh, three- to six-year-olds. Right. And so uh, – did you develop the show for that audience? Yeah, no, we did. And we knew that it had to have, it had to move quickly. Um, we knew, Scholastic was great, and partly because of the cartoon, they had all the rules. Like, this person always says this, this person never does that, this is their catchphrase. And so we were able to build that in because we needed recognizability. But we also did a lot of audience participation stuff. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, oh, they have a, she meets someone and they talk about their favorite snacks. And then, of course, she had, uh, I made, um, Emily Elizabeth, is that her name? I think so. Um, talk to the audience. I, I wish I could tell you, but it's yeah. not a show I watch. Yeah, right. I, but but I would have her talk to the audience as like sort of like Shakespeare, a Shakespeare aside. And we came up with a plot line. We, we went from her getting the dog to having to move to, we found there, that, you know, when they, they had to move to a new place. So it was a lot about her making new friends. Um, I would laugh that it was a lot of activity. There was a dance we choreographed in the middle of it that everyone had to learn in the audience. They did a beach ball into the audience when they went to the beach. <laughs> and I would laugh that these older ushers at these theaters would be like, all right, everybody, they would be yelling at the kids to be quiet and calm down. And and, and then the first thing we did was come out and get them to be loud. We knew that it was experiential, not necessary. There's a narrative in it because I also wanted to make it something for the parents. Um, so was we, it a contiguous narrative or was it episodic through the show? It was contiguous. I mean, because it was so about getting one, the, one and narrative. Yeah, and it was the, sort of the arc of it is is everyone thinks Clifford is a is, is a is a menace. How does his size and stuff, which was a problem, you know, him sitting on things and wrecking things at the end of the, how does it save the day? How does his size turn out to be? He rescues someone because um, he's able to deal get you know what I can't remember the details of it now, but. Again, we same sort of narrative structure. You know, he was the outsider. They try to build a community, um, and then he figures out a way to become a part of that community, um, as opposed to the people who wanted him gone because he was a menace. Fascinating. Okay, so let me ask you: Surely, in your uh, career, you have dealt with um, more than a your share of oddballs <laughs> and quirky experiences or characters. Can you give us share us share with us one good? Oddball or quirky story that would be fun. We were talking about this last night. That um, at, I was at City Theater seeing Wild with Happy, and uh, um, we were laughing about how every town has their audience member. That's my favorite. Like here, every town has this audience member who everyone knows. Oh, sure. So here we have uh, we have the cackler um, <laughs> who sits in the front row and is, laughs and really is enjoying themselves. So you can't really say anything. And then I had Johnny G. Fisher was the guy in. 
Plano, Texas, who would sit in the front row and open his mail during the show. No. And to pay his bills. Um, wow. Again, but, and it's so funny. And I guess, the, and it's, what's funny is you're like, oh, but then you go talk to them and they are so passionate about, I mean, they go to every theater. There's this guy here, you know, I see people I see all the time. Like now I see, sure I recognize, do. I'm like, that guy's at every show. Um, so I think that's very passionate. Um, I'm trying to think there's anything else that's really oddball. I, I can tell you, you know, uh, um, Jekyll and Hyde, for instance, yeah. on Broadway, there are there's this legion of fans called right. the Jekies. And there was one fan in particular who had seen the show on Broadway more than 400 times. Right. And paid tickets, yeah. ticket prices to go see the show on Broadway more than four hundred times. People do that. It, it, you know, God bless them. But, but you know, it's like, okay, I, why were why are you doing that? Well, they're just into the show. It's a passion thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's much like somebody watch Star Trek and tell you every, everything about that or Star Wars. Um, you know, we we um, they're the altar holics, which are the people that follow the, the altar boys. <laughs> um, and I was laughing. The woman who actually did our licensing from Roger Hammerstein said she was one of those back in the day. And she came up to see our production. Um, you know, we've had people that, you know, become uh, the cabaret because it's so intimate. We've had people buy the cast dinner just because they want to get to know about the show. And it's one of the things that I'm really trying to do at CLO now is a sort of how do you break that barrier between you sit in the seats and we do the shows. So a lot of my new work stuff is going to have, we're going to do a new works boot camp where people can learn how shows are developed and get to watch rehearsals. We're going to do, you know, obviously the post-show discussions, but I'm also trying to do social engagements, you know, late nights at the bar where you can watch them do a singer's, you know, first song gets sung and you can meet the person and talk to them. I really want to break down that barrier um, Are you trying to? You thinking about doing more interactive shows? No, it's not about interactive. I think an informed. We're, you know, new work is while we've done the twenty six shows on Broadway, new work is still relatively new to our audience. We've done it kind of behind closed doors, and we're moving more to the regional model where you do it with your audience. That you know, an audience gets to see a first reading, um, and then. Uh, and then comes to a later workshop, and it's the same people, and they invest in that show, much almost the same as being the sort of groupie. Uh, but I want them to know the authors. I want them to feel they can say things. I want them to say, you know, I, I was moved by this. Now, the trade-off is the boot camp is coming along because I want to teach people how to actually talk to artists, not just I would write this this way or I think that character's this. So um, we're trying to figure out how we can train an audience, and I did this in, in, in Glens Falls. I spent a lot of time in my talkbacks not just doing about the show, but trying to talk about what an artist actually needs to hear, that the artist is the, the writer's the craftsman. They know what they need to do. They actually learned everything they needed to know by watching you watch the show. But what you can give them is reflecting back. I was moved. I identified with this character. I, you know, so trying to use what, you know, the Liz Lerman critical response process as a model. It's a much more involved process than I can do in a 30-minute talk back. Um, but I really want to make people understand what artists need to do their best work. And on the same hand, I want artists to understand the role an audience can play with them. Well, we have been speaking with uh, producing director of the Pittsburgh CLO, Mark Fleischer, and we're coming to the end of our show, which has been a fabulous conversation. (laughs) And I'm just wondering, do you happen to have one really good solid tip that you could lend to our our listening audience, a career tip or production tip or something like that that would be helpful? I will say because it comes from mine. Um, Being in the room is the lesson. Get in the room. Doesn't mean you'd be to get in the room and be in charge. Um, I'll give you a story. So I was an intern at the Dallas Theater Center working for the Children's Theater. My boss said, can you go to the production meeting for the main stage? 
just so they know what we know what's going on. In the middle of that meeting, the guest director, Richard Hamburger, said, I'm going to want an assistant director when I'm here. And everyone just kind of looked around because they weren't used to having assistants. I went back to my boss and I said, I need to figure out how I can have this position. I know it's things I need. And I figured out how I could do my job for her, and which was the important part. I said, here's how I can make it work for us. And then I want to be in the room. And then I got in the room. And it was my first time in a LORT rehearsal process. Through that, I met other people. Tell, tell our audiences what LORT oh, is. Oh, League of Resident Theaters. This right. was the Dallas Theater Center in Dallas, mm-hmm. Adrian Hall's old stomping ground. And I got to know Richard. I got to know the stage managers. I start And knowing people gets the door open. I would say that um, who you know may get you in the room, but what you know will keep you there. Um, but it really Great is about advice. being in the room. Um, you know, and even if it's sweeping the floor and I did the same thing in Chicago, I would call people up and go, Hey, I just want to come hang out and watch a rehearsal or be in the room. And I was 34 when I went to graduate school. So then I'd show up, they thought I was a student. I'd show up and they realized I could do more. And then before I do it, I was an intern reading scripts or I was assistant directing a show with, uh, Jose Rivera. Um, I just kept trying to get in the room. And then when I was doing that in Dallas, I, I would get jobs because I wanted to be a director. I'd get jobs doing um, design. I would do anything. I would design a set. I'm sure I can figure out how to design a set. Can you run the light board? Yeah. And then I'd figure out just to get in the room. And then I would always remind them, that was a really great lighting design. Yeah, but I really direct. There is no substitute for experience. No, and I think that's probably why I do what I do now as, a, as I was such a generalist. Um, and it allowed me to learn how what I now know how to talk to a designer versus a playwright versus a producer versus a marketing department. Um, and I think that's why I found myself in this. But no one should niche themselves. It's just, you know, there's learn everything. But be in the room. Find a way as a young person to get in the room. And you should know that they'll let you in. Because when you're, in, you're, you're a student asking to get in, you're not looking for a job. I mean, I always tell students, like, <laughs> ask now. I'm a student in Point Park. Is there any way I can sit on rehearsal for whatever show at the public? I just sit in the back. Someone at some point is going to ask you to do something, and then you're in. Um, Now everyone's going to be calling the public. (laughs) But anywhere. I mean, that's just – but do it when you're a student, not another just another BFA looking for a job or an MFA. Mark, this has been a fantastic chat. I really greatly appreciate you coming and joining us on Story Thank you so much, Steve. I've I've had a great time, and, and thank you again. My thanks again to Mark Fleischer, producing director of the Pittsburgh CLO. Today's tip, movies are entertainment first. Major feature films rarely succeed when they are preachy or educational. People tend to go to the movies because they want to forget their troubles, not because they want to worry about their lives even more. Viewers love to forget their woes by sinking into the troubles of characters deep in conflict on screen. Spend some quality time thinking about how enjoyable and entertaining your story will be well before you start working out the many details you'll need to complete a memorable tale. First and foremost, you must really want to tell the story. Why else would you bother spending your time on it? Beyond that, ask yourself if you think anyone else would find it entertaining too. Keep in mind that The word entertaining does not necessarily mean happy or uplifting. It means holding the audience's attention, gluing them to their seats, and leaving them wanting more. No matter if your story is a drama, comedy, tragedy, or a mixture of them all, it must be compelling. So be sure your story will have the audience on the edges of their seats. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. 
This podcast was made possible with the tremendous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Special thanks go to Ashley Murray for her tireless assistance in helping me to put this program together. Until next time, I'm Steve Kuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.